Lives were saved during the Minneapolis bridge collapse because of training and preparedness. How were the local physicians and community prepared for such a disaster, and what went right and why? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. John Hick, first responder to the scene of the Minneapolis bridge collapse and medical director for emergency preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center, where the majority of the patients were taken from the scene. Dr. Hick and I are discussing the importance of sound policy and procedure during the pre-hospital phase of a disaster, which eventually led to the successful delivery of services at the bridge site. Dr. Hick, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Bruce. So can you briefly describe the moment the bridge collapse emergency started for you? Well, ironically, I was actually working on an emergency preparedness grant um, at home, and my pager went off and advised uh, bridge collapse, multiple victims in the water. And so I'm an on-call emergency medical services physician for Hennepin County Medical Center's ambulance service, and I'm also the medical director for Minnesota Task Force One, which is our collapse rescue team in the state. And so I elected to to go ahead and respond based on that information, And, and about five minutes into you know, my response, it was pretty clear that we had a a major incident that we were dealing with. The crews on the scene were requesting additional personnel. The fire department had requested a second alarm be turned in, and all the traffic seemed to indicate that we had a major problem. So on my arrival, it was really like a movie set. I mean, you had uh, a large semi-trailer, the cab of which was fully engulfed in flames, right next to it, a school bus. Concrete was everywhere. Uh, The bridge was buckled on itself. And this is about a half a mile long bridge that was entirely collapsed. And so, you know, the cars were scattered pretty much as far as you could see across the river. So it was a very, very impressive scene. And you're in charge of emergency medical services up there. Is that correct? I'm an associate medical director for emergency medical services. So I'm one of the medical directors for our ambulance service. And then I also have a role in uh, hospital preparedness for the area, um, help to organize the hospital compact, which is our 29 hospital agreement up here to you know, cooperate and uh, respond to disasters jointly uh, as a regional entity. So is this the sort of what you're describing, the emergency medical system up there? Yes, the emergency medical system is, you know, there's tiers of, of response from, you know, essentially for our first responders to our emergency medical service agencies, uh, the advanced life support providers, then to hospital care. And if we, you know, would overwhelm regional hospital or other resources, we would depend on, you know, interregional cooperation within the state of Minnesota or interstate or even federal assets. So, you know, we try to logically move up a chain of response. And, and fortunately, in this case, not only were there as many injuries or deaths as we might have expected given the scope of the collapse, but we were able to you know, put together, I, I think, a, a relatively well-organized response based on those principles. And which was the primary responding EMS agency in this? Hennepin County Medical Center's ambulance service has the what's called the primary service area in Minnesota for uh, the whole area of the bridge. And so it was within our primary response area. So our supervisors and, and ambulances responded, but we realized that this was going to require mutual aid. And so eventually six different EMS agencies uh, were involved in responding to this and coordinating with us. And then we had additional EMS agencies who were helping backfill some of our territory. And the fire departments wound up doing the same thing. They had other fire departments and mutual aid staffing their stations in the city of Minneapolis while their resources were committed to the scene. So what were some of the initial priorities at the scene? 
the first thing was just to make sure that, that we tried to keep anybody additional from getting hurt because we had a tremendous number of, of University of Minnesota students, of some healthcare professionals, of victims who had been on the bridge, and they, they did a phenomenal job of uh, helping to evacuate other folks off the bridge. The, most of the folks that were ambulatory, unless they were on the part of the span that had collapsed into the river, were already off of the dangerous area of the collapse by the time that, that we got there. And so uh, an initial search of particularly the South Bank revealed that we really didn't have uh, any non-ambulatory, any critical victims left. But scene safety was a, a huge issue. We had down power lines, the debris was shifting, we had water hazards, you know, basically dropping all this concrete into the Mississippi River created some really unusual currents and hydraulics around the debris. Um, so scene safety was, was a major, major issue. And then just kind of taking a look and saying, you know, what are we actually dealing with? I mean, how many victims do we have? Where are they? What sort of ambulance resources and, and triage and treatment resources do we need where? Uh, and getting your command and control established and making sure that, that that response becomes as organized as possible and the communications are as clear as possible. So we designated a, a incident channel or a tactical channel on our 800 megahertz radio system that all responding EMS agencies used to contact our EMS branch director, who was Tom Ward. He did a fantastic job, would direct them to a staging area, and then we would you know, essentially request them. Uh, from there. So just kind of getting all those initial things set so that the rest of the response rolls as smoothly as possible is really important, and you just don't want to have secondary injuries. What are some of the issues that the EMS branch director had to cope with at the scene? Well, aside from just the general chaos, I think it was really difficult, you know, with one perspective, because you are kind of captive with a really large, broad scene like this. You're captive to what you see in front of you. And so to kind of get radio information from others about what we were dealing with and, and where things were going and where we needed ambulances and how they could get there, because the bridge collapsed across the main access road on the north side of the river, um, that can be really difficult to kind of establish in your mind's eye. And then quickly, you've got to get together and establish what we call unified command, that the emergency medical services has to be elbow to elbow with fire and police, sharing information so that people don't wind up getting hurt, sharing information to devote the right resources to the right place at the right time, getting information back to dispatch so they can get that out to the hospitals and say, here's what we're thinking for casualty numbers, here are where people are going. Those things are, are really hard for the branch director to get their arms around very early on. How does your EMS system work together with other systems at an incident like this? That's a great question, and I think we're pretty lucky in this area. We have a joint powers agreement through the Metropolitan Emergency Services Board that allows a coordinator to work with grant funding and work with the different agencies on, on common goals, whether it's education or emergency preparedness. And emergency preparedness has been a focus for us. We've put a fair amount of hospital uh, preparedness program grant dollars into EMS over the past few years. So all the EMS agencies in the, in the metro area, and there's about 25 of them, they all work off of a common response plan. It's basically a fold-out card. Um, it's much, much simpler than it used to be. So they all work off of that. We have common vests. Uh, we have common triage tags. Uh, everything is the same. There's continuity across the services as best as we can. And we've tried to do major interagency drills where our supervisors are working with supervisors from other departments and agencies. And, and I think that really paid off. I mean, that was extremely effective when we had supervisors from other agencies coming in and just seamlessly being in charge of a staging area. That's when, when a lot of that uh, pre-planning and, and the partnerships really came together. So is there one particular person that would be in charge of the entire operation? 
Yes, the EMS branch director has ultimate authority for all emergency medical services operations at the scene, but then they have to delegate responsibility as needed to maintain what's called span of control, that you never want to have more than about five people that are answering directly to you, especially in a scene like this that is uh, so chaotic. So Tom pretty quickly assigned supervisors to the north and south sides of the river to be essentially division supervisors uh, on those sides of the river. Those division supervisors recognized that because of the way the collapse had occurred, the upstream and the downstream side couldn't communicate very effectively, and there were big issues with getting patients off of that downstream north side. We actually had to use pickup trucks to remove a number of those victims uh, because we couldn't get ambulances in there. And so pretty quickly, upstream and downstream uh, supervisors were also assigned, so it was essentially broken down into a, a five-sector response, um, upstream and downstream, north and south, and then the span in the, in the middle of the river. Did your emergency preparedness ever consider a bridge collapse? Uh, never. We, we uh, you know, I will honestly say that has never been a scenario that has come up that we felt that we needed to drill. Um, and so I'm grateful that we were able to adapt to, you know, new situations just kind of based on the principles that had been drilled and, and deal with it, I think, in a relatively effective fashion. But no, that never crossed our radar screen. And what kinds of drills did you do that prepared you for this? Water drills, traffic drills, maybe having the bridge be out? Honestly, a lot of the exercises don't contribute to exactly. We have done some drills in limited access areas, a plane crash in the Minnesota River Valley, for instance. We've done major nerve agent drills. We've done some structural collapse drills uh, that, that I think helped. But a lot of the things that, that really helped were more about the organization of the response and how the mutual aid agencies play into that response and, and understanding how that worked in advance, I think, than any of the specifics of the drill. How was triage conducted at the scene, and was it effective? Our first in units on, on both the north and the south side, um, one paramedic stays with the truck and becomes the transport officer, and the triage officer does a quick, hasty assessment of the area, and you know, he tries to identify any red casualties for the next incoming crews to prioritize for transport uh, and direct all the walking wounded uh, up to the transport officer. And so that's what essentially occurred on both sides. The triage officer on the north side there were some medical professionals from the University of Minnesota uh, side and other uh, places that were already on site, and he touched base with them about patient conditions. He fortunately grabbed a trauma bag and put his helmet on before uh, going up onto the debris field. The first patient that he accessed, unfortunately, um, died right as he began communication with him, and, and there was not really any way to save him. Right at that time, um, he was also hit in the head by a large chunk of concrete, but fortunately, because of the helmet, the paramedic was uninjured and so moved on to the next patient who had um, catastrophic chest injuries and that patient was very rapidly moved to an ambulance but unfortunately had a cardiac arrest later and, and was not able to be resuscitated um, at the hospital. But our reds were then quickly identified, moved to ambulances, moved to the hospitals and that left a lot of yellows with back injuries primarily and then a number of walking wounded that were directed to ambulances waiting in a safer area out beyond the down power lines. The yellow Yellows on the north side became a little bit of an issue because of the, the ambulance access and the fact that on, on one side of the debris field we had about a 15-foot drop that we would have had to set up rigging to get those people down safely on backboard. So we elected to transport them by pickup truck uh, up to the top of the, the river bank and along a, a gravel road by a railroad yard to meet the ambulances. So we had to do a little bit of adaptation that wasn't ideal, but it was about the best we could do in the circumstances. Disasters strike when we least expect them to. 
Measures taken by physicians in their community before disaster hits can mean the difference between rescuing the living and recovering the dead. I want to thank our guest, Dr. John Hick, Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center, for helping us understand what we can do to help save lives. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. You've been listening to this special report of the Clinician's Roundtable. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.